trusted voice of truth and light. God gave me a gift. I shovel well. I shovel very well. And a rally point for those who've accepted the reality that they are not sheep. We've got a blind date with destiny. And it looks like she's ordered the lobster. This is The Brian Hyde Show. Well, hello there, fellow wrong thinker, and welcome to the show. Hey, our program is brought to you by great sponsors like MonticelloCollege.org, LifesavingFood.com, and the Heather Turner team at Patriot Home Mortgage. I hope you'll visit my sponsor links, which you'll find in my show notes at TheBrianHydeShow.com. Just give them a click, tell them thanks, and let them know that their message is reaching your ears. All right, there's a lot to cover today, and I'm going to start with what seems like kind of a heavy topic, but I'm going to try to do this in the most constructive way that I can. And and maybe this is just therapy, okay? Maybe this is me working out some issues, you know, and, and you're along for the ride, but I can't be the only person who is um, trying to adjust to, to the understanding that, uh, you know, the whole idea that, you know, if things can just get back to normal, if we just get everybody vaccinated, we can get back to normal. If we can just get this virus under control, we can get back to normal. I'm beginning to to understand that normal, or at least what was normal prior to, say, March of 2020, I don't think it's coming back. And that may sound very dire to some people, and it's not my intent to, yeah, we're... We're pretty well doomed. No, it's, I think that just because things change, and it took me my whole lifetime to learn this, but change is inevitable. But we've had it good for a very long time. So the idea of, you know, things changing and and uh, things being different and uncomfortable, look, I, I totally get why people struggle with that. Like I say, I've, I've lived my life far too much in the comfort zone. It's only in probably the last 15 years that I've really started to embrace the idea that it's going to change. Circumstances will change. You're going to be dealt, you know, challenges that you maybe didn't anticipate. And it's never the stuff you're worrying about either. That's the kicker. A friend of mine whose wife passed away from, from cancer here a few years ago um, was telling me there's, there's great wisdom in the idea that the things you spend your time worrying about aren't the things that are going to cause you actual hardship and stress. Most of that stress is just self-imposed. It's the stuff that you have absolutely no idea is just around the corner, the stuff that blindsides you at 4.30 in the afternoon on a Tuesday. That's what's going to get you, and that's kind of how it was with his wife's diagnosis of, uh, of a terminal illness. Boom, out of the blue, everything changes. So I'm not trying to minimize this. I understand it's hard for everybody, but it's tough to contemplate getting used to things being different than before. I don't know if you are a fan of or if you're even aware of. There's a a television series out there called The Chosen, which uh, illustrates and tells the story of the New Testament. Basically, it's it's following Jesus as he's calling his disciples and the the interactions that they have. And this is very different from a lot of the, the different uh, movies and films and, and, and series, you know, educational series about the Bible that you may have seen before in the sense that the, the characters portrayed in The Chosen 
are very fallible. They're very human. And yet, I've heard more people say, and I've actually felt this myself, there's something very um, empowering about seeing that. I don't know what it is. It, it's, it just it, it makes it more real because you realize, you know what? They didn't all walk around with their hands together like in an attitude of prayer and angelic harps, you know, mysteriously playing somewhere in the distance everywhere they went. No. They had some real difficulties. And when Jesus called those individuals, come follow me, they had no idea how much their lives were going to change. Well, there is a point where one of them says, you know, um, this is really different, you know, or things are things are, are, are way different than I thought they would be. I'm paraphrasing. But the answer that Jesus gives him is get used to different. And I'm not trying to make this into necessarily a religious, you know, conversation, but I think that's probably good advice for all of us in, in whatever areas of life we're experiencing this change. And right now, there's a lot of places where this is changing. I'm going to include in the show notes a speech that was given to the Ron Paul Institute summer uh, student seminar this summer. Um, I'm sorry, it was given uh, actually earlier this month. So at the end of summer, September 3rd, this was given by James George Jatras. And it's titled, It's Later Than You Think. Now, I'm going to share just a couple of excerpts from his remarks, but it's a, it's a fairly lengthy address, but man, he has some great advice. Keeping in mind, he's speaking to young people. And he's, and he's kind of uh, agonizing over it. He says, you know, I accepted this invitation to speak with great trepidation, and he gives him three reasons why. He says, the first is, of course, both for self-protection in an increasingly unfree country and my growing sense that nothing I or anyone else can say is going to make much of a difference in averting the horrors I believe are coming our way. In fact, he says, I actually had ceased my public writing and speaking life such as it was, but I reluctantly have made an exception to that less than momentous recusal. But he says, I plan to resume it at the end of today. In other words, I came out of retirement, essentially, to speak to you, but I'm going right back in as soon as I'm done. Secondly, he says to these young people, I was loath to contaminate your naturally ebullient optimism of youth with my crotchety boomer pessimism. And he has a point here. He says, at your age, you should feel that the world is, if not quite your oyster, at least pregnant with possibilities. How do I tell you that in the layman's terms, your lives, uh, at least in the near future, will probably suck? But there's hope. And he says, I'll return to that. Third, he says, I thought it would be derelict of me not to provide you with some sage, old, gray-beard advice of a practical nature. In other words, if I were in your shoes today, what would I do? specifically to try to make a positive contribution to the world around me, how to best serve God and my neighbor, to make my country and world a better place, and to do it in relative safety, in a modest degree of economic sustainability, maybe even comfort, to marry, start a family, to see your offspring rise in peace and prosperity. Now he says, see, that's, that last is the most daunting because the world has changed so much in such a short time. And, of course, that pace of change is accelerating. He says, back in the olden days, uh, in my case, he says, back in the late 1970s when I entered government service, that was actually an honorable thing to do. But he says, that's, that's pretty rare these days. And he walks through, you know, his life history and, and his work history. 
and and describes how he came to see the truth of what was happening with our government as well as with other governments. And I want to I'm going to skip over a lot of that. He has some very good historical perspective. But he talks about how the laws and the Constitution have come to be violated on such a regular basis that no one even really calls it out, at least no one who should be calling it out. That would mean people in power. That would mean people in the media. You know, the watchdogs have become lapdogs, and that's pretty much where they're comfortable. But he says what's happening is happening with astonishing speed. It's difficult to look back on the events of 2020 and to anticipate worse to come without some foreboding that the world is nearing some sort of crescendo. And he says, I don't know, maybe this is going to be similar to earlier ones, the collapse of the Western or the Western Roman Empire, the Islamic conquest of the Eastern Empire, the East-West Great Schism and the Crusades. How about the neo-pagan humanism of the Renaissance or the religious strife of the Reformation? The misnamed Enlightenment with its malign offspring revolution and progress, the world wars, the totalitarians of the modern era. But he says, with each seeming turn of the wheel, with each ebb and flow between disorder and partial restabilization, the net linear advance of Gnosticism is undeniable. He talks about the Great Reset. And he talks about, you know, the impact that is being had by the, the response to this virus. And, I, and I'm going to skip through most of this because, again, this he gets into a lot of details. If you're looking for some good reading this weekend, I think you'll really like sitting down and enjoying what James George Jatras has to say. When we come back from the break, though, I want to share with you three specific things that he advises the young people in his audience to consider doing. Three practical tasks that they can undertake to help make the world a better place. And the beauty of what he's suggesting is this is the kind of stuff that won't just work for young people, it'll work for any of us. And I thought it was refreshing. Look, I'm coming to terms with the idea that, hey, maybe things have changed in such a way we are not going to see a return to normal. We're going to have to get used to things being different. I'm okay with that. But I also want to make the best of the situation. I want to have the the best impact that I can have, regardless of the circumstances. So we'll come back with James George Jatris's recommendations, just the other side of these messages. This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. Hey, welcome back to the show. So I'm sharing this article from James George Jatras. A very unflinching look at how it's later than we think, but there are still some very practical things that we can do. And I think the key message here is, yeah, things are changing, and, and they're changing at an almost frightening pace for a lot of us, but, you know, it's It's okay. This has happened before. People have survived. We've got to be resilient enough and flexible enough to make the best of those changes and not just wallow in, oh, it didn't go the way I hoped that it would. Before I go back to his article, I want to take just a moment here to talk about lifesavingfood.com. This is one of my sponsors, and and it's it benefits me when you do business with them 
because they are helping to support me being on the air. They are helping to keep the wolf away from the door. But I love that I have teamed up with them because they are offering you something that could be very, very useful. Whether times are good or whether times are bad, having a good supply of food storage with a 25-year shelf life, just add water, uh, lots of great different uh, entrees to choose from. Uh, they can even accommodate uh, you know, people who can't handle gluten, so a lot of gluten-free choices. Please go to the link in my show notes at thebrianhideshow.com. Click on Life-Saving Food. And if you find something that works for your family, whether it's a complete food storage package, whether it's just a few additional items to bolster your existing supply, please use the coupon code HIDE at checkout for a 10% discount. It'll do you good. You'll sleep better at night. It will benefit me and that my sponsor will be saying, hey, Brian, people are responding to this message. I guess it's, it's, it's a win-win situation. And it looks like it's becoming, you know, more necessary as time goes on. All right. So the three practical things recommended by James George Jatras when he was speaking to an audience of students at the Ron Paul Institute Student Seminar earlier this month. He says, I want to give you, you know, some some advice. And and he's got some experience to draw from. But he says, uh, I... For what it's worth, I put before you three practical tasks for your consideration. And and he does this with the understanding that for most of us, our ability to impact the big picture regarding all the crazy stuff going on is is probably quite slim or quite small, and, and that's okay. He says even our ability to discern the signs of the times in an era of pervasive Gnostic deceit abetted by technologies unimaginable just a few years ago, is limited. But here's what he suggests we do. He says, firstly, be vigilant against deception. In a day when assuredly evil men and imposters will grow worse and worse, deceiving and being deceived. Now, admittedly, that's a tough one. Given the, ever, given the ever-present lying that surrounds us and the suppression of dissent. Try to sift truth from falsehood, but he says don't become obsessed because in many cases you won't be able to be sure anyway. Does that sound familiar? I think I was complaining about this yesterday on the show. I, I'm looking for truth all the time. I'm sifting all the time, but I struggle sometimes. How, who do I believe? Who can be trusted? So he says focus most on what's proximate to you and on the people most important to you. It sounds terrible, I know, because everyone who's denoted as an expert or an authority isn't necessarily unreliable, but that's a good starting assumption. In other words, be skeptical about everyone. In communist countries, that was the norm. Listen to what the establishment media say to foreign sources if you can access them, to access them rather, and to anti-establishment dissidents. Then it was Samizdat, now it's internet conspiracy theorists, but he says, don't get sucked in by Trojan horses like the infamous Q. Then triangulate and take your best guess. Now, there may be a cost. As Solzhenitsyn said, he who chooses the lie as his principle inevitably chooses violence as his method. And we're seeing things push towards more and more ruthlessness and, and it may come to violence in trying to keep the lie going. This is particularly true with the justifications for, for lockdowns. Secondly, 
He says, as stewards of every worldly charge placed on us by God and other people, as fathers and mothers, as husbands and wives, as sons and daughters, as neighbors, as students, as workers, as citizens, as patriots, we must prudently care for those to whom we have a duty within the limited power and wisdom allotted to us. Now, that means start with yourselves. Be as self-sufficient as possible. Get involved in your community. That leftist slogan, by the way, is actually a good one. Think globally, act locally. Here's what that looks like, though. Befriend your neighbors. Learn a real skill. Electricity, plumbing, carpentry, farm. He says, don't go to law school, for goodness sake. Get in shape. Eat and sleep right. Have plenty of the essentials. Food, fuel, gold, ammunition, and learn to shoot. Limit computer and phone time. Boy, this is a big one. Cultivate healthy personal relationships, real ones, not the virtual ones. Marry young, have kids, especially women. He says, don't get seduced by all that career nonsense. Read old books. I second that one. Cultivate virtue. Go to church. And he says, you know, simply being what used to be considered normal, and leading a productive life is becoming the most revolutionary act one can perform. With that in mind, find the strengths to be revolutionaries indeed. Not the black mask-wearing, you know, Antifa-type revolutionaries. Come on, that's a loser's game. In our day and age, revolutionary means planting your own garden, homeschooling your kids, keeping yourself unentangled, with all the various ways that Big Gov is trying to help you. He says, you've seen the meme. Hard times create strong men. Strong men create good times. Good times create weak men. Weak men create hard times. Well, he says, take it from the weakling generation that brought them to you. The hard times, they is a coming. But they won't last forever. If you live through them, and some of you will not, We'll see what possibilities, as of now, literally unimaginable, might then exist. But he says you will need to be personally fit to take advantage of them. And you'll also need to be part of some kind of sustainable community of like-minded people. That's pretty radical stuff, huh? And yet it's just common sense. Third, he says, for those of you who are believers, particularly Christians, we must pray without ceasing, firm in faith, that through whatever hardships may lie ahead, even the very hairs of our head are all numbered. And the final triumph of truth is never in doubt. And with that, he wishes the young audience, thank you and good luck. You're going to need it. I like that approach. I mean, he's honest. And look, there, there are some people who will just be like, oh, that's the bad news. The, the masochists are loving it. You know, this confirms we're all going to be miserable. I don't know what the future holds, but it's pretty clear. The consequences of bad decisions that have been made uh, by even generations that came before us, they're, they're culminating. We're going to have to face them. I don't think there is any way around them. I don't think they can be avoided. I don't think they can be bargained or bought off. The can's been kicked down the road about as far as it can. Somebody's going to have to deal with it. And like it or not, that's going to be us. I know. I don't feel like I'm up to the task to, and yet... I'm thinking back here to, to what this, uh, this wonderful speaker is saying. James George Jatras is saying, 
You've got to be willing to act, even if you even if you don't know exactly what you're doing, even if you're not confident in your abilities. And I think it's important. He talks about the the importance of rely on God. Turn to your Creator if if you need that confidence. I know it may not seem like much to, to some people, but to me, the reminder of who is really in charge of this universe has a great calming effect. No matter how crazy things are getting, I understand it's a temporary thing, and what really matters is still as rock solid as ever. That's the kind of foundation we've got to be building on for whatever we're building. This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. Hey, welcome back to the show. If you would like to uh, check out my show notes, please visit my website, thebrianhydeshow.com. There's some great resources for wrong thinkers. You can contact me. You can send me a message. By the way, I am getting more and more emails. Was thrilled to uh, hear from a listener in Australia. And man, my heart goes out to this individual. Um, They actually asked me, please do not use my name. So I I won't use this person's name, but um, things are tough. Things are really tough in some places. And that that yearning for freedom and that yearning for good information, sometimes just just to, to get a sense of what's going on, without feeling like, yes, it's all hopeless. It's it's real, and it's out there. I actually had a friend tell me yesterday, he says, you know, I, I regularly unplug from the media. I regularly fast from social media, too. And and I totally understand why he does it. There's times I really wish I could do it, but my what I do um, needs, you know, I, I need to be plugged in at least to, to some degree, but I unplug every chance I get. My friend told me, though, he says, when I come back from my fast, he says, you are one of the first sources I go to just to get a general sense about what's going on. So hopefully I'm not, uh, you know, throwing too much, you know, trivial stuff your way. I try not to get into the, you know what, grinds my gears mode and, you know, just be complaining. I want to share stuff that hopefully gives you insights on here's where we are. You know, here's the direction we're going. Here's what we can do about it. And I love getting feedback because if I do go off in the weeds, someone will always say, hey, back this way. (laughs) Thank you. Thank you. Because sometimes I forget. I want to take a minute to talk a little bit about anarchy. Now, I know the word anarchy strikes fear in the hearts of people who associate it with bomb-throwing extremists and absolute chaos, the law of the jungle, every man for himself. But, you know, that's not what the word actually means. And I thought you would really, I thought you might find interesting Isaac Morehouse, who I consider one of the most positive individuals I've ever spoken to. He says it's weird not to want anarchy. Now, now listen to his explanation. He says, Anarchy is simply the absence of rulers. It is not chaos, bomb-throwing, or communism. The absence of rulers does not mean the absence of leaders or even the absence of governance. It means the absence of a political ruler, a person or institution that claims the moral right to initiate violence. Now, he's pretty blunt here. He says violence sucks. Nobody wants to resort to it. But there are times when everyone agrees it's morally acceptable to use violence. 
And these times are all in self-defense against someone who has initiated violence. But Isaac Morehouse says initiating violence against peaceful people is wrong. Yet that's all that government is. And he says, I repeat, that is all that it is. The single distinguishing feature that makes government different than any other organization is that it claims the moral right to initiate violence. It can enslave or murder anyone it damn well pleases. You will pay its leaders money and obey their rules or they will kill you, period. There is literally nothing else that defines government as apart from other institutions. I know that makes people mad, by the way, when they hear it described so bluntly, but that's, that's a matter of them bumping into a truth that they're just not quite ready to contemplate, much less accept. I mean, think about what kind of conditioning does it take to get, you know, a whole population or the majority of a population to think it's good and it's right that someone in authority tells me what to do. And if I don't, men with guns and badges will come and hurt me. It's good and right that someone in authority takes a portion of every dollar that I earn and claims it as their own and uses it as they see fit. And if I try to deny them that contribution, in air quotes, they will send men with badges and guns to hurt me. I know people have the platitude, oh, this is part of the price of civilization. You pay the price for a civilized society. Hey, I got to look at last year of what happens for what we're getting for our tax dollars and, and what a civilized society looks like. And you know those mostly peaceful protests with all the smoke and the rubble and the, the, the broken windows and the looting, the flavor, uh, yeah. We're not getting a whole lot. But still, they take that money and men with badges and guns will come and hurt you if you try to prevent them from getting their cut. So he's not wrong. He's not wrong. So Isaac Morehouse says to want government or to not oppose government is to want or not oppose the initiation of violence against peaceful people. Now, he says everyone feels comfortable saying, well, I want a world where nobody dies from cancer. Many people donate to and work towards that world. Nobody wants a world with murder, rape, famine, poverty or infant death. Everybody openly says as much and wants to work toward that world. No one says, I want some rape in the world, or I want a world where some children get murdered sometimes. That would be weird. But he says it's also weird not to want anarchy. It's weird not to desire a world where no one initiates violence against peaceful people. It's weird not to want a world where interactions are voluntary, and violence is only used in self-defense. Now, whether or not it's achievable, You'd think, just like an end to cancer or to a poverty, people would at least want to achieve it. Oddly, he says, anarchy is likely far more achievable than most of those other things, as there have been anarchic societies lasting hundreds of years, and he says, to my knowledge, no society has been without sickness, premature death, murder, poverty, etc. Yet hardly anyone wants anarchy. And he says it's due in part to confusion around definitions and meaning. Those who wield government power rely heavily upon people not realizing the stark reality of what government is, organized violence. So they create schools and propaganda and egghead ivory tower discussions and metaphors that abstract away from what government is. Words like anarchy are made synonymous with chaos, 
Words like law synonymous with order. This is classic doublespeak. Isaac Morehouse says, So asked if they'd prefer a world where violence was only used defensively versus one where one group of people got to use violence any time they wanted to force anyone they chose to do whatever they wanted, most people would probably say they prefer the former. Word magic prevents them from seeing that they just said they prefer anarchy, and most would never agree to it. They'd defend the government without realizing the contradiction. But he says it's not only conceptual and linguistic confusion. Isaac Morehouse says, I suspect many people are unwilling to say they want a world without the initiation of violence because they want to reserve the right to have violence initiated on their behalf. Now, nobody wants to admit it in those words. But most people get tired of peaceful persuasion, conflict resolutions, tolerance, competition, individual freedom. They want peace, but damn it, if they get sick of hearing people speak a language they don't, they'll advocate sending men with guns to murder those people if they keep peacefully offering to rent from or work for their neighbors. He says people want to protect that little corner of darkness in their hearts. The one that wants to go get the bully with the big stick to beat the crap out of people who won't give their money to their favorite cause or live as they see fit. That's weird and gross. He says we can only control ourselves. We must purge the darkness from our own hearts, the darkness that would use the tools of the state to aid in our personal aims. Those tools are always inferior to peace. The practical results are always worse and their spiritual corrosion is inescapable. Like I say, Isaac Morehouse is one of the more positive commentators out there, but I also love the fact he just tells it plainly. So, anarchy's not such a bad thing. I know we've been trained since our childhood to view government as kind of a hybrid parent god, and the thought of not being ruled over is, is pretty terrifying to some people. We've allowed ourselves to be convinced that a lack of rules somehow, or lack of a ruler, rather, is the same thing as a lack of rules. But I would just remind you that human nature is remarkably adaptive to spontaneous organization when problems arise. Absence of the state doesn't turn us into the Lord of the Flies, but that's kind of the the attitude that we've been told to hold. I think about the motorcyclist in Logan, Utah, a few years ago, who uh, crashed into a car, was trapped under the car. The car is on fire, and there's a group of people there, and there's a policeman standing there directing traffic and keeping people back. Get back, get back, it's dangerous. But uh, here's this car, on the burning car on this poor motorcyclist, and suddenly the crowd, without direction from the officer, in fact, against the officer's direction, swarms the car. There's probably... 12, 15 men lift the car off the motorcyclist and someone grabs his legs and pulls him to safety. Yes, he did survive. That may sound sound crazy, but you know what? That's an example of what anarchy looks like. Spontaneous organization. We've got to solve this problem. The lone authority figure who was on the scene, well, he finally did join in after he saw that people weren't obeying his commands. Get back, get back. If you can get used to living your life without permission, I think you'll do well with freedom. Trouble is, a lot of people don't want that. This is The Brian Hyde Show. 
This is The Brian Hyde Show. And we are back. A quick shout out here to the Heather Turner team at Patriot Home Mortgage. Now, they are located in St. George, Utah, but I'm telling you, if you are buying a home anywhere in the state of Utah, this is the team you need to talk to. Because if you are looking to get a VA loan, a traditional loan, a reverse mortgage, the Heather Turner team at Patriot Home Mortgage has the experience, the stability, and the clout to help you get the loan you need without delay. And that's important. Timing is everything in the hottest real estate market that uh, most people have ever seen. So get in touch with them today. Call 435-703-4522. There is an email link in my sponsor notes or my sponsor links in the show notes at thebrianhydeshow.com. That'll put you right in touch with Heather. Heather's NMLS ID is 715386, and Patriot Home Mortgage is an equal housing opportunity lender. All right, moving on. Is there any kind of therapy for the current madness that we are experiencing and it's not just here in America, but but pretty much worldwide. I know that uh, there's a lot of talk about mental health. And, and I don't know, you know, I, I don't think people are being hypochondriacs or whatever the mental health equivalent of a hypochondriac is. And I find myself questioning this a lot. And it's, sometimes it's a matter of, it, it, am I accurately seeing and processing what's happening here? I mean, I, I don't pretend to have all the answers. I may speak with confidence on, on some things, and, and there are some issues that I think I have, have uh, I've, been, I've examined them closely enough for long enough and, uh, you know, defended them and, uh, and argued them that I'm okay with committing to, to the truth of them. I'm still open to new information that might change my mind, but uh, outside of that new information, I'm okay with, with embracing them as truth. But I still find myself wondering, where, where is this going? Am I strong enough to, to be able to face this and continue to be consistent with my principles? I know I'm not alone in this. But I do love it when someone comes up with, a, with a, a good metaphor for what we are going through. Robert Weisberg, writing for intellectualtakeout.org, which, again, I would recommend as one of my favorite resources for wrong thinkers. A lot of good writers, a lot of good topics. They cover... Culture, education, family, philosophy, politics, Western civilization, they really do a great job. Well, Robert Weisberg has written a piece called Therapy for Our Current Madness. And he says just flat out, look, it's no secret that we live in crazy times. Yet more is involved than just a bunch of crazy people running wild. If this was just individual mental illness, the Diagnostic and Statistical Manual of Mental Disorder, or DSM, would help. But unfortunately, the DSM fails to address today's political madness. And with that deficiency in mind, he says, let me offer an analytical framework that might prove helpful. For instance, today's political insanity might be called compulsive destruction disorder, CCD, or I'm sorry, CDD. A main symptom is the irrepressible urge to undermine Western civilization in general, particularly traditional American society. Now, it's a wide-ranging disorder, disproportionately afflicting those in the academy and exhibited in ideologies such as Marxism and critical race theory. A utopian element, transforming today's allegedly horrible world into a paradise, is present. But CDD sufferers are not harmless daydreamers. He says, rather, they are energetic crusaders 
whose life mission is to undermine what is generally judged a good, though hardly perfect, society. Those suffering from compulsive destruction disorder are radical egalitarians. I just want to put some skin on that word uh, egalitarian. They want everything, everyone to be equal. They're unable to live with imperfection, ever happy to to, uh, upend lives, even harm millions in pursuit of their fantasies. Now, compulsive destruction disorder, he says, manifests itself in multiple endeavors, the common thread of which is subverting a society of remarkable accomplishment. These crusades include undermining education, eviscerating the military and law enforcement, squandering trillions of taxpayer money on pointless social engineering, and forcefully silencing their critics. CDD sufferers want to eliminate all merit-based tests, such as the SAT, insisting that feelings outshine logic and evidence in uncovering truth, replacing rigorous academic subjects with feel-good courses and dumbing down excellence to certify everyone as equally talented. And then he asks the question, why? Conceivably, their misguided passion simply reflects the do-gooder mentality on steroids, even if this kindness harms the recipient. For example, when we defund the police to help poor people, or maybe when he says these urges might be more rationally self-serving. I mean, after all, eliminating the SAT may help their dumb offspring gain entry to Ivy League schools. But this might also be virtue signaling to provide a cheap congratulatory high and serve as the admission ticket to good society. Robert Weisberg says, let me, however, suggest an alternative. The destructive urges are hardwired rather into their genomes, and they just can't help themselves. There are the gap finders who cannot help but fret over unfair gaps everywhere. Lines are longer at women's uh, women's bathrooms. Black neighborhoods have fewer trees. Dry cleaners charge more for women's blouses than men's shirts. In the meantime, the privileged sniffers are impulsively enraged that men disproportionately win more math prizes and create more high-tech firms. And then don't forget the language manipulators who feel the irrepressible need to distort vocabulary to achieve progress. See, for these people, the SAT does not measure cognitive ability, but is instead an arbitrary barrier to exclude talented minority kids from Yale while prostitutes are sex workers. And then there are the social exorcists unable to resist destroying inanimate objects like statues. I love, by the way, these these labels that he's come up with. Gap finders, privileged sniffers, language manipulators, social exorcists. I think those things ought to be in the DSM as well. He says, since these hardwired urges cannot be resisted, it's pointless to argue rationally with facts and figures. In light of these irresistible impulses, perhaps we should consider barring those afflicted with chronic CDD from positions of responsibility. Promoting a compulsive gap closer to a four-star general guarantees a weakened military. Let's try that again. Promoting a compulsive gap closer to a four-star general I think he's talking about Millie, isn't he? Guarantees a weaker, weakened military as he uh, works 24-7 to ensure that SEAL Team 6 looks just like America. Oh, my goodness. I'm sorry. That, that just strikes me as... Whew, that's happening. The purple-haired, you know, uh, non-binary uh, pronoun gang members, they are definitely being accorded a place in our military. 
That's a little bit spooky in the sense that, uh, I don't know. I think we, we, we put some pretty important things on the shoulders of our military. You know, they're to defend and to protect. But I think you have to be kind of tethered to reality in order to do that. And a lot of the things that are being embraced right now, they're not even based in reality. Anyway, I digress. Robert Weisberg says, This exclusionary policy is hardly novel. Few people are permitted to hold sensitive jobs if they suffer chronic alcoholism, drug addiction, or comparable liabilities. Maybe compulsive destruction disorder in all its manifestations should be added to the list of job disqualifications. How is it different than prohibiting those afflicted with hypersomnia, the inability to stay awake during the day, from being airline pilots? He says, America suffering from a plague of craziness. It's time for some serious therapy. Now, I want to, I, as much as I appreciate what he's saying here, I want to temper what he says with, with a couple of annotations of my own. It isn't about changing other people. The solutions you and I are looking for do not involve getting other people to do what we tell them. And, you know, and it could be something that we're telling them, wake up, be aware. Trust me, as someone who's been trying to help people wake up for a very long time, I don't know that that's necessarily the best route. Just because people will wake up as they are ready to, but they've got to do it on their own terms. If you throw a bucket of cold water in somebody's face and then stand there waiting for them to congratulate you, you're going to be standing there for a long time. I think the most important work we can do is be good people. I know that sounds trite. I know that sounds too simplistic. How could this possibly work? I've just seen it work so many times in real life. A person who is truly good, a person who is is standing firm on his or her principles and living them, not so much standing on the street corner talking about them and gesturing to the sky as they orate, but actually just living as a good person. You create a kind of gravitational pull around you that you would be wise not to underestimate. And it will influence those people who are ready to open their eyes and ready to look for a more sure path. So let's be that person. This is The Brian Hyde Show. A trusted voice of truth and light. God gave me a gift. I shovel well. I shovel very well. And a rally point for those who've accepted the reality that they are not sheep. We've got a blind date with destiny. And it looks like she's ordered the lobster. This is The Brian Hyde Show. Well, hello there and welcome to the show. I'm really grateful that you're part of my audience. If you're listening for the first time, thank you for giving me a chance. Now I'm going to do my best not to drive you screaming in the other direction. I think you'll find that uh, some of the views expressed on this program are unorthodox, perhaps a little bit out of step with mainstream society, but, you know, at no point are you obligated to agree with them or otherwise, you know, subscribe to them. What I do on a daily basis is I search and search and find the best information I can about what's going on in our world And then I try to present that in a principled manner that takes it out of the realm of shouted bumper sticker slogans 
and into the realm of looking at what are the principles, what are the practices that apply here, and most importantly, what can you and I do as individuals to better the world around us, even if it's just right there within our own little circle of influence. Never underestimate the power of people who are consistent in their principles to wield good influence when it's needed. I think the fact that you're actually checking this out is is a good indicator. You are one of those people. My program is brought to you by great sponsors like MonticelloCollege.org, also by LifesavingFood.com, and the Heather Turner team at Patriot Home Mortgage. Now, this is the team you want to talk to if you are shopping for a home and you're anywhere in the state of Utah, whether you're looking to refinance your existing home loan or maybe you need a VA loan or a traditional loan or even a reverse mortgage, talk to the Heather Turner team at Patriot Home Mortgage in St. George, Utah. They're at 619 South Bluff Street. You can call them at 435-703-4522. Heather's NMLS ID is 715-386, and Patriot Home Mortgage is an equal housing opportunity lender. So anyone who understands the power of what a fully informed jury can do, the authority of a fully informed jury, knows that uh, the jury is one of the most effective checks on government power and one of the most important ways to keep unjust laws from inflicting harm on people. But would it surprise you to know that sometimes jurors are not told what the penalty will be if they vote to convict they hand down a guilty verdict, they have no idea what the possible, you know, potential penalties are. That's something that needs to change. And there's an excellent article by Daniel Epps and William Ortman in the Washington Post on this matter. I thought this was a good place to start today. Just because, look, I've been through that period of time where the jury duty notice shows up in the mail and it's like, oh, oh how can I get out of this? But once I started learning about uh, what the jury really represents and why the jury is the most powerful entity in the courtroom, my attitude did a 180. I flipped around and went, you know what? This is actually super important. You know, we think of the judge. Well, that's the most important person in that courtroom. Nope, he's the referee. That's all he is. He's just there to make sure that the procedures and rules are followed. But when it comes to rendering a verdict, it's the jury They're as representatives of the people from which government gets its legitimate powers. That's where the real power is. And to to be able to participate in a jury trial is, is actually quite an honor. And once you understand, you know, just how important this is, and maybe sometimes it takes, you know, seeing a couple of high profile cases where a jury says, there's no way we're going to convict this person. That's when you start to understand why a fully informed jury is, uh, is necessary and jury duty is something that you should rejoice at the opportunity of being asked to participate in. Don't try to avoid it. I mean, you may be, the, it only takes one juror, just one with a conscience to cast a not guilty vote and they can hang the jury, so to speak, you know, to, if, if there's doubt you know, then the, the court has to declare a mistrial. They've got to decide whether to retry the case. It just takes one juror to do that. And, of course, if, if an entire jury says, we don't agree, we think this law is being misapplied, then they can vote to acquit. Maybe it's because I've seen this happen with some pretty high-profile cases, but I'm a big believer in it. 
So let's talk about why jurors don't know what the penalties for a guilty verdict would be, but they should. And again, this is an article from the Washington Post. Daniel Epps and William Ortman write, The American criminal justice system asks jurors to do something extraordinary. They make decisions that have enormous consequences for their fellow citizens' lives, depriving them of freedom for decades, for example, without knowing those consequences in advance. And that's because most American jurisdictions follow a, rury, a, a rule rather of jury ignorance, meaning that neither judges nor lawyers may tell jurors what punishment a defendant could receive if convicted. Now, there are rare exceptions, state courts in Louisiana and North, North Carolina, for example, but in most American courtrooms, judges go to great lengths to make sure that the jurors don't know what will happen after a guilty verdict. Now, the article says keeping juries ignorant exacerbates one of the U.S. criminal justice system's worst tendencies, and that is the inclination to grow more punitive. Evidence from both history and social scientific experiments suggests that jurors are less likely to convict if they know a defendant's punishment could be extremely harsh. The rule of jury ignorance eliminates an important check on the system. If politicians thought juries would be less likely to convict when a sentence was severe, for instance, they would be less likely to pass draconian laws. Now, replacing ignorant juries with informed ones, therefore, could be an important criminal justice reform. As a general rule, we propose that judges should tell jurors the range of sentences, including the statutory maximum and any mandatory minimums that a defendant would face upon conviction. Now, apparently there are some obstacles to this reform, notably a 1994 Supreme Court decision that described jury ignorance as a well-established principle. Well, that's flattering. Justice Clarence Thomas, who wrote the opinion, said, There was a basic division of labor in our legal system between judge and jury. Juries find guilt, judges sentence. Now, in that case, Shannon v. the United States, the defendant who pleaded not guilty by reason of insanity, wanted the jury to be told that he would be confined involuntarily even if the jury concluded he was insane. The jury wasn't told, and he was found guilty. But that argument was, or that opinion rather, was weakly argued and not well grounded in judicial history. The argument that juries should be informed about sentences should appeal to both liberal and conservative justices of an originalist bent, with liberals focusing on how such reform could democratize the criminal justice system, and originalists focusing on the fact that the ignorant jury lacks a a solid historical foundation. Indeed, juries informed about punishment were quite familiar to the founding generation. In the 18th century, both in Britain and its American colonies, jurors understood that by finding a defendant guilty of of a less serious crime, like libidinous actions, say, instead of a more serious one, like adultery, they could spare them from a death sentence. And often they did exactly that, even when it was obvious to all that the defendant was guilty of the more serious offense. It was only in the 19th century when prisons and incarceration replaced the death penalty as the leading form of criminal punishment that judges undermined jurors' opportunity to shape punishment by shielding them from any acknowledgement of it. So fast forward to today. The United States has become the most punitive country in the world, and the costs of mass incarceration are disproportionately borne by members of disadvantaged racial and ethnic groups. 
Part of the blame lies with criminal statutes that are far more severe than ordinary citizens might assume. For example, a person caught selling 40 grams of fentanyl, that's about the weight of a slice of bread, faces up to 40 years in federal prison for a first offense and life without parole for a second offense. See, prosecutors love harsh statutes in part because they help them strike deals. Threats of extremely harsh punishment makes defendants uh, more guilty to plead guilty and give up their right to a jury in exchange for a somewhat reduced penalty. Just so you understand, the vast majority of criminal convictions today come from guilty pleas, not from trials. And that's especially true at the federal level. It's something like 97% of those cases result in conviction. And it's because of plea bargains. And in the relatively rare cases that do go to trial, jurors routinely express surprise at the punishment a defendant received as a result of a guilty verdict. In fact, they say consider the 2014 trial of an Occupy Wall Street protester for assaulting a police officer. Upon learning too late that a guilty verdict exposed the defendant to a seven-year prison term, one juror expressed sadness and disbelief. Most on the jury just wanted her to do probation, maybe some community service. Even a year in jail is ridiculous. There are lots of similar examples that are easy to find. We'll come back to this article in just a few moments. But again, the the jury is one of those essential bulwarks against tyranny. And it's something you can be a part of, so you might as well be informed about it. This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. Hey, welcome back to the show. Yeah, I'm getting y'all ginned up and excited about the prospect of jury duty. You know, I've been called up for it many times. Only once. Once did I actually have to report, and uh, sadly, I was weeded out very quickly in the voir dire um, process where, you know, apparently, apparently I didn't, I didn't look like I was malleable enough to, uh, to make the, the attorneys on either side comfortable that, yeah, he could be easily led. I tried to kind of glaze my eyes over, and when they'd ask, and how are you doing today? I'd be like, yeah. I'm just kidding. It, it's it's true though. If if you appear to be, you know, really paying attention, if there's any hint that you may know what the words "fully informed jury" mean, and by the way, fija dot org, fully informed jury association, that's a website you really ought to check out. Yeah, they'll they'll uh, they'll weed you out quickly. So. At at any rate, back to this article. This is in the Washington Post, and this is an article by Daniel Epps and William Ortman about how jurors don't know what the penalties for a guilty verdict will be oftentimes, but they should know. And as the example was given just as we went to break, you know, in a 2014 trial of an Occupy Wall Street protester charged with assaulting a police officer, jurors didn't realize that when they voted guilty, They sent this woman to prison for seven years. And one of the jurors actually said, well, most of us just wanted her to do probation, maybe just some community service, but even a year in jail would have been ridiculous. But off she went to prison for seven years. So the authors say, under our proposal, jurors would know about the punishments that await defendants on the other side of a guilty verdict. 
Judges would spell out the minimum and maximum sentences as part of their instructions to the jury. Such a system would introduce some challenges. For fairness regarding the charge at issue, jurors should not know about a defendant's prior convictions. So in cases where recidivism might play a role in sentencing, a trial might have two stages. The jury would rule on the basic crime and then on the enhanced sentence. Now, notwithstanding such procedural complexities, they say the advantages of informed juries are compelling. As a general matter, much the, the higher stakes lead to greater caution and decision-making. Just contemplate how much more thought you put into buying several hundred thousand dollar home compared to a $10 meal. Yeah, it's, it's, it's a good example. In rare cases, juries would acquit even clearly guilty defendants where they saw the punishment as unjust. And by the way, the one jury trial that I was called up for and was not seated on the jury for, that's exactly what happened. It was cool. I was actually thrilled to be able to, to, to have the chance to report for jury duty and you know to talk to some of the people who ended up on the jury. It was a drug case, and it was a guy who was actually a Mexican national, didn't speak a word of English. He lent his car to a friend. His friend used the car to, to smuggle some drugs, which were then found in the defendant's possession when his car was, was searched. And what he was guilty of was was bad judgment. He definitely had, you know, methamphetamine and other things in his car. But it was clear enough to the jury that uh, what the guy was guilty of was not drug trafficking and facing multiple years in, in federal prison for that crime, but just bad judgment. And so they rightly voted to acquit him. Even though it was clear that, yes, he did have the drugs in his possession. He didn't know they were there, but uh, but he had them. Does that make sense? I mean, the whole concept of justice and mercy has uh, has been going on for a long time. I still think Shakespeare may have given it the best treatment in The Merchant of Venice, but that's a that's something you may want to put on and and watch uh, watch a movie version of just you know for for your own edification. The article here says, but the transformative potential of informed juries goes beyond what they do in individual cases. Informing juries about punishment will alter the incentives for three key actors in the criminal justice, in criminal justice, that is. Defendants might be more willing to roll the dice at trial, counting on juries to see the unfairness of sentences. Prosecutors may think twice before overcharging in order to avoid losing more cases. And lawmakers might hesitate before enacting severe penalties after seeing the preceding developments. Juries, informed juries, that is, could not single-handedly end mass incarceration or racial disparities, but they would definitely be a step in the right direction. Some criminal justice reformers have proposed an unchecked right for juries to refuse to enforce laws they view as unjust for any reason. But jury nullification is contentious, and in most jurisdictions, lawyers are prohibited from arguing for it. Informing juries about punishment is a more narrowly tailored reform that would also curb onerous laws. Look, I am all for jury nullification. And I know people will throw at me, well, now, Brian, what about uh, the O.J. Simpson case? That was an example of jury nullification. Absolutely. And, you know, based on what I know about the evidence, I didn't handle it myself, but based on what was reported, it sure looked like there was, you know, more than a likely case of him being guilty. However... 
I would have to side with William Blackstone, that great legal mind from Britain who, you know, wrote to Blackstone's commentaries on the laws. I would have to side with him in the idea that better that 10 guilty men should go free than one innocent man be punished or be imprisoned. I'll just remind you, there's a universal form of justice that none of us is going to escape. And it's it's funny, you'll see people bristle when, when you bring up jury nullification, especially attorneys, because they're not allowed to talk about it. But it's it's a real thing. And sometimes it's necessary. And that's one of the reasons why, if there's an unjust law, and, and you know, I see somebody being unjustly charged, I pray that I would be on that jury. Because I would do my very best to convince the other jurors this is a misapplication of this law, and we should be voting not guilty. The article goes on to say, informed juries would also be more democratic juries. We'd effectively be asking a group of citizens to authorize a punishment before a judge could impose it. While most criminal laws are enacted at the state or national level, criminal juries are typically drawn more locally from cities or counties. Even when members of the communities impacted by impacted the most by punitive criminal justice are shut out of decision-making by lawmakers, they can still have a powerful impact in the jury room if they have the relevant information on which to act. And such juries would also better honor the spirit of the Constitution's guarantee of a jury trial than the juries we have today. Criminal juries were intended by the founders to be powerful checks on state power over criminal punishment. They weren't just supposed to be narrow fact-finders. So now the question is, how to bring this reform about? Legislatures could direct courts to inform jurors about sentencing, or the courts could, on their own accord, reverse the wrong turn they made on juries more than a century ago. Several federal court judges have expressed frustration over jury ignorance in recent years. By giving jurors the important power to determine the fate of those accused of crime, our system places a tremendous amount of trust in the judgment of ordinary people. We should trust juries with information that's critical to their making the soundest, most just decisions possible. Again, this is from Daniel Epps and William Ortman. I think this is good stuff, and I think it's worthwhile. I don't know what the likelihood of of you or me ever being called up for jury duty is. But if it comes, it would pay to, to really understand. Why does the jury exist? What are the powers of the juror? And what does it mean to be a fully informed juror? Again, FIJA.org. That's the Fully Informed Jury Association.org. That's a place where you can start to get some really solid answers. All right, let's take a very quick break. We will be back just the other side of these messages. This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. Hey, welcome back to the show. You know, I just, I I was talking to somebody the other day, 
And what were we talking about? Oh, it was uh, the the Met Gala and uh, AOC's dress, tax the rich, you know, and and just the, the whole masked servants serving the unmasked elite. And, oh, look, isn't she dressed in this this wonderful, iconic dress and everything? And, and, and somebody made the comment, man, this is like it's straight out of the Hunger Games. And I don't know if you are familiar, if you've read the, the series or you've watched the movies. I've both read the books as well as, as watched the movies. And it's a pretty remarkable series. It's a very dystopian story, but in the same way that uh, Uncle Tom's Cabin was, was kind of a catalyst, if you will, for, uh, for the abolition of slavery, I think uh, that uh, this may be one of those classic stories or classic works for our time. And that uh, the things that are warned about in the Hunger Games, they, uh, they are legit warnings. Now, if you have read the series, you probably are starting to recognize, hey, there are some interesting parallels between this dystopian world of Katniss Everdeen and our own. Got a great piece here from Jen Mafasanti from the Foundation for Economic Education. This is actually from almost a year, uh, actually almost two years ago. Remember back when things were normal? (laughs) But she talks about five ways the Hunger Games dystopia happened in real life. You don't just have to turn to fiction to find dystopian stories. Jen Mafasati says, It's no secret that the young adult dystopian fiction had a very real moment recently with franchises like Divergent and Maze Runner making it to the big screen. But the most wildly successful has to be the Hunger Games series by Suzanne Collins. The movie versions featured Hollywood darling Jennifer Lawrence along with other big-name actors like Philip Seymour Hoffman, Liam Hensworth, and uh, Elizabeth Banks. Now, she says dystopian stories are popular for sure, but you don't have to turn to fiction to find them. We can see them in the socialist countries that existed and continue to exist in the real world. Sadly, that would include our own these days. First one is the capital versus the districts. In the Hunger Games, the capital is the seat of political power in the nation of Panem. It's also where you find all the good stuff. The protagonist, Katniss, comes from the impoverished District 12, and she's shocked by the beauty, the cleanliness, the opulence that she sees in the capital. The colors and varieties of food and jewelry, the quality and quantity of food, the grace of the architecture, the comfort of the furnishings, cutting-edge holographic technology, weapons, even simply reliable electricity, everything surpasses what's in the districts. Now, it isn't that such finery isn't affordable to the people back home. It's that it's not available at all, not even to the district mayor. The everyday folks back in the district are stuck with ramshackle houses, much-mended clothes, and low-quality food that's only sometimes enough. Now, in the Soviet Union, it was a similar situation in the capital cities like Moscow, if a little less exaggerated. Since it was the seat of political power for the Communist Party, that's where the majority of luxuries were. Luxury goods were very expensive and hard to find outside of the city if they could be found at all. Big cities like Moscow were where you had the best shops, the best vehicles, the best clothes. Some of the goods managed to get out to the countryside, especially if there was a particularly important industry there. But the largest concentrations were in the capital city. Even today, the dichotomy of the capital having the good stuff, or at least the better stuff, while the countryside does without remains true. And, and, and Jen includes in her article a satellite image of North and South Korea. And it's at night. 
and it's it's pretty crazy. Relatively free South Korea is lit up through the entire country, not just the capital city of Seoul. Pyongyang, the capital city of the north, is a conspicuous pinprick of light in a sea of darkness. Sure, in major cities and fairly free countries, you'll find a higher concentration of high-end goods and architecture. But New York City, for example, isn't the nation's capital. In fact, it's not even the state capital. Okay, here's the second way that the Hunger Games dystopia happens in real life. Fine dining versus scrambling for scraps. While in the capital, Katniss is stunned by the food available, the kind she'd never even dreamed of back home in District 12. In fact, during her pre-games interview, when asked what she finds to be the most impressive thing about the capital, she answers, the lamb stew. Earlier in Chapter 5, she tries to compare a single meal on the train to the capital with what she'd be able to come with, come up with herself at home. This is from the book. Quote, I try to imagine assembling this meal myself back home. Chickens are too expensive, but I can make do with a wild turkey. I'd need to shoot a second turkey to, tr- to trade for an orange. Goat's milk would have to substitute for cream. We can grow peas in the garden. I'd have to get wild onions from the woods. I don't recognize the grain. Our own tessera rations cooked down to an unattractive brown mush. Fancy rolls would mean another trade with the baker, perhaps for two or three squirrels. As for the pudding, I can't even guess what's in it. Days of hunting and gathering for this one meal, and even then, it would be a poor substitution for the capital version. End quote. Now, Genma Fasandi says back in the real world, Soviet apparatchiks enjoyed exclusive grocery stores that non-party members were barred from using. Steaks, lobster, caviar were secretly delivered to party elites that never made it to the shelves of even the exclusive party grocery stores, while the common people were treated to, or relegated rather, to meager supplies of low-quality foods. But even the finest food in the U.S., in the Soviet Union rather, couldn't compare to what was found in grocery stores in the U.S. Now, a more modern example of this might be Venezuela. The average Venezuelan adult dropped 25 pounds in 2017 due to lack of food. And many are suffering from malnutrition. Meanwhile, Socialist Party loyalists receive solidarity bags of food, and President Maduro can be seen feasting at a decadent table with his wife. Number three, horsepower versus foot power. In Panem, the capital enjoys luxurious, high-tech hover transports and slick motor cars. What motorized transportation that exists in the districts is for moving around production goods and inputs and peacekeeper troops. Katniss takes note of the District 12 coal miners walking to and from their shifts, exhausted. In fact, until becoming a tribute, Katniss has never ridden in a car. Again from the book, quote, It's a short ride from the Justice Building to the train station. I've never been in a car before. Rarely even ridden in wagons. In the seam, we travel on foot. Now, the article goes on to say, in the Soviet Union and East Germany, common people, if they managed to get a personal car, paid a small fortune for low-quality junkers and another small fortune for garage space so the precious autos wouldn't be stolen and or stripped for parts. They were so precious, in fact, that they were rarely used lest they become damaged or break down. But at least the military had their tanks and the party top brass got armored limos. In modern Cuba, Cuba rather, the requirement that citizens have a permit to buy a car was only repealed back in 2014. A recent episode of the popular British show uh, Top Gear showed the 
hosts taking a trip to the island nation to get a feel for their car culture. Most of the cars were modified classic American cars that were imported before the embargo of 1959. Now, granted, that embargo was instituted by the U.S., not Cuba. But there ought to be European, Japanese, and Korean cars, right? Taxes and markups make buying a new car four to five times more expensive in Cuba than in Europe. So even extremely modest econo boxes are out of reach of the common Cuban. Hence, the prevalence of what Americans would consider very old cars. Now, many everyday Cubans with a car have it registered as a taxi, so they can give rides to those without one. But El Presidente still has access to those pimpy armored convertibles, and his cronies still ride around in new Range Rovers. Number four in this comparison of the Hunger Games to real life, humans as people versus humans as cogs. Jen Mafasani says in Panem, every district has an assigned specialty. Our hero's home district, number 12, mines coal. District 11 deals with agriculture. The closer the district is to the capital, the nicer their specialty. District 1, for example, makes luxury goods like jewelry and other decorations for the capital. District 3 creates its technology. So unless you're a tribute or a coach for the Hunger Games or you join the Peacekeepers, you're forbidden to leave your district to do something you might like better. In China, under the rule of Mao Zedong, the citizens were given a lifetime employment guarantee that came to be known as the Iron Rice Bowl. Knowing you'll always have a job might sound nice, but in practice, since there was no private enterprise, only state-owned and state-run enterprise, your permanent employer was the government. People were divided into work units, which they tended to be born into, that controlled almost every aspect of a person's life. The work unit administration had to grant permission before someone could move into a new city. And, of course, that permission was contingent on how good a citizen you were. That Chinese social credit system you hear so much about, that's not a new idea. Got to take a quick break. We'll come back and finish up this article just the other side of these messages. This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. Well, welcome back to the show. I suppose since we're talking about The Hunger Games and five ways that The Hunger Games dystopia has actually uh, been seen in real life, Let's talk for a moment about some food storage. Let's talk about one of my sponsors. That would be lifesavingfood.com. Whether you are looking for starter food kits or you're looking for long-term supply, survival kits, maybe you just want to bolster your existing food storage with fruits or with meats or with vegetables or milk and eggs, this is a great way to go about it. I have a link in the show notes at thebrianhideshow.com. Just click on lifesavingfood.com and do me this favor. If you decide to purchase something from them, please use the coupon code HIDE at checkout. They'll give you a 10% discount, plus it will let them know that, that this message is reaching your ears. Greatly, greatly appreciate you doing that. So I'm sharing an article here from Jen Mefisanti from the Foundation for Economic Education. She wrote this a couple of years ago. 
about five ways the Hunger Games dystopia happened in real life. I don't know if you get a chance. If you haven't seen the movie series, maybe pop in one or two of them this weekend. And you'll, you'll probably find some very interesting parallels. Number five on the list was the freedom of expression versus crushing dissent. The very basis of the Hunger Games is centered around punishing the already subjugated districts for their failed rebellion attempt decades ago. The yearly reminder of exactly who's in charge is the foundation of the story itself. The games are a preemptive form of dissent suppression. Now, in the 74th games, Katniss's three-finger salute for Rue after covering her in flowers and her partnership with Peta are viewed by the capital as dissent, and they go out of their way in an attempt to kill her in the games. In the very first chapter, Katniss remembers, I scared my mother to death. The things I would blurt out about District 12, about the people who rule our country, Panem. Eventually I understood this would only lead us to more trouble, so I learned to hold my tongue and turn my features into an indifferent mask so that no one could ever read my thoughts. And Jen Mafasandi says, and let's not forget the poor Avoxes, people deemed traitors who've been rendered mute and forced into servitude in the capital. Now, the Soviet Union and East Germany may not have had Hunger Games, but they definitely had gulags and the Stasi. Any action or speech that didn't fall within acceptable norms set by the party was viewed as deviance and dissent and could net you a one-way ticket to re-education. There's also evidence that the Ukrainian Holodomor, a man-made famine from 1932 to 1933 that saw millions of Ukrainians starve to death, was instituted to punish perceived disloyalty. To this day, the critics of the Chavez-Maduro regimes of Venezuela are imprisoned or simply killed. A Venezuelan friend and former co-worker can't return home for fear of retribution for his political stances, and he's far from the only one. Jen says, and North Korea's system of prison camps for those who dare question dear leader's authority is the stuff of nightmares. Masaji Ishikawa, who escaped from North Korea, writes, What if the local villagers came to realize that their standard of living was pitiful? Worse still, what would happen if they got wind of the concept of free thought from us? They might question the wisdom of Kim Il-sung, and that was verboten. Which brings us to vicarious thrills versus real tyranny. Jen Mafasani says, look, to be clear, there's no shame in enjoying dystopian fiction. Goodness knows, she says, I certainly do. Watching either on the screen or in our mind's eyes, our courageous hero or heroine topples, topples the clearly evil regime is intensely satisfying. But these fictional stories gain a certain weight when we pause to think about the real-life dystopias that existed and continue to exist today. Granted, no government, no society is ever perfect. Even the freest, most prosperous nations have room for improvement. All governments fall short of living up to their stated principles. That said, some are worse, much worse than others. While the ones that trample the human rights of their citizens aren't limited to the command and control regimes of socialism, all of those socialist states that fully embrace the ideology ultimately do. So as the anniversary of the fall of the Berlin Wall was coming up, she says, remember the real-life heroes and heroines who risked everything for freedom, but also remember those still suffering under the boot heels of those governments that seek to control them. Now again, this article was written back in 2019. This was very, uh, I mean, it's, it, it was right on, on target 
without any of the COVID stuff that we have seen in the last 19 months. Think about how much more dystopian our own lives have become. Crazy stuff. And the people who refuse to see it, I know, it's, it, it frustrates me. And it makes me wonder, too. I have to question, you know, myself. Sometimes I have to humble myself. Am I the one who's seeing this wrong? Am I totally getting this wrong? All right, shifting gears. One more thing I wanted to talk about. This one surprises me. I don't spend a lot of time talking about, you know, the latest Hollywood buzz or, you know, here's what the tattler is saying today. But uh, when, I, when I hear the name Nicki Minaj, if someone were to say, hey, who's Nicki Minaj? I would say, well, she's like the biggest pop star ever with the filthiest lyrics around. I mean, she, she was, you know, I won't, I'm not even going to talk about what, what really put her on a lot of people's radar screens, you know, earlier this year. But I'm also a little bit surprised to find that Nicki Minaj is becoming an unlikely hero for free speech and freedom of association. And, and it stems from um, she simply expressed an opinion and the cancel culture crowd went nuts. And yet she was brave enough to push back. Matt Keener, writing for AmericanThinker.com, says, Who knew that rapper Nicki Minaj would emerge as a champion for free speech and an out, outspoken critic of censorship? Even stranger, Minaj found herself retweeting Tucker Carlson while Carlson championed her on his nightly show. Strange times indeed, but he says, adversity often makes strange bedfellows. Minaj just learned rule number one of the modern illiberal party. There is zero room for liberty of thought. Now, her critical error was having the audacity to question the vaccine narrative and encouraging people to make their own decisions. And it started with admittedly one of the funnier tweets or claims from Minaj, quote, my cousin in Trinidad won't get the vaccine because his friend got it and became impotent. His testicles became swollen. His friend was weeks away from getting married. Now the girl called off the wedding. So just pray on it and make sure you're comfortable with your decision, not bullied. Now MSNBC's Joy Reid pounced and shamed Minaj. People like Nicki Minaj, I have to say this, you have a platform, sister, that has 22 million followers. For you to use your platform to encourage our community to not protect themselves and save their lives? My God, sister, you can do better than that. For you to use your platform to put people in a position of dying from a disease they don't have to die from? Oh, my God, as a fan, I'm so sad that you did that, sister. Now, Matt Keener says, look, I don't know the validity of the story about uh, Minaj's cousin in Trinidad. He says, I do know encouraging people to make decisions they are comfortable with rather than peer pressured into is sound advice. And while Reed implied that Minaj is putting people in the position to die for making a decision for themselves, maybe Joy Reed needs to Google or refresh her knowledge of the Tuskegee experiment, in which black prisoners were infected with syphilis for 40 years prior to feigning her astonishment at the hesitancy. Twitter trended a special article to dispel the idea that vaccines could impact an individual's infertility. And rather than back down or cower, Minaj persisted and called out Reed, pointing to a Reed tweet where she herself expressed hesitancy about the vaccine and the government, in which Reed said, Will anyone, anyone at all, ever fully trust the CDC? This was when Trump was still president, of course. Tucker Carlson also noticed the Minaj controversy. It was one of the top stories on his nightly show. Who knew? He said, who could have guessed that rapper Nicki Minaj would turn out to be one of the bravest people in the United States? She merely said, as an adult and as an American, 
that she should decide whether to take the vaccine. Pray about it, she said. Don't be bullied. And things blew up from there. No praying about it. You must submit to being bullied. Those are the new rules. Nicki Minaj wasn't aware of that. She resisted, and she's still paying. Now, she she's really... I... I Look, I don't know her music. I couldn't uh, I couldn't pick a song of hers from anything. But uh, she's taken a lot of heat because she retweeted Tucker Carlson's tweet or a Tucker Carlson clip with a with a bullseye as if to say he's nailing it. And Carlson defended her by saying, you know, it's the last part of the tweet that enrages them, the part that says pray on it, make the decision yourself. Like a free human being, don't be bullied. So our media and public health officials, they didn't like this because they make their living bullying people. They couldn't let it stand. And, of course, the woke crowd turned on her. She's not a person I would have found myself admiring, but i got to tell you, I've got some grudging, grudging admiration for Nicki Minaj. If for nothing else, you know, she's pushing back against the cancel culture and the woke mentality that you can't even agree with, much less acknowledge someone from another party or another ideology. we got to be better than that. Much, much better. This is The Brian Hyde Show.